I just said to Holly, wait, is that it? <laughs> I thought there was another verse. I don't know. Second verse. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So this morning we find ourselves in the middle of the Easter season. I'll remind you once again that Easter is not just one day. It's not a one and done deal. It's actually 50 days. We go from Easter Sunday to Pentecost Sunday. We're three weeks out from Easter. We're three weeks to go to Pentecost Sunday. So here we are in the middle of it. Now, it might sound kind of silly to say it like this, but during the Easter season, uh, we celebrate the life of Jesus. We celebrate um, his death on the cross, we celebrate his resurrection from the grave, his, his victory over death in the grave. And I say that might sound kind of silly because isn't that what we do every week? You know, one of my wise old mentors way back in the day said, um, every Sunday morning should be a mini celebration of Easter. And I think we do a pretty good job of that here. But now, how, however, one of the aspects we focus on in this 50 days, see, the church sets out different seasons for us to focus on different aspects of our walk with Christ. One of the things that we focus on during these 50 days is the many times that Jesus appeared to his disciples. If I gave you a quiz, I'd wonder how many of those you could actually write down. How many times? But the reason we look at them is we talk about um, when he appeared, uh, where he appeared, why he appeared, what the lesson was for the purpose of him um, uh, appearing to his disciples uh, before you know, he ascended into heaven. He actually ascended into heaven 40 days um, after Easter. So he was on this earth for 40 days. Now, again, I want to look at a couple of times why Jesus chose one moment in particular in history to appear to his disciples and, and his followers and, and then apply what they learned, apply those ideas to our lives. Right? We don't just look at these things as an academic study and say, well, that was a pretty cool story. No, we look at them and we put ourselves in that narrative. We put ourselves in those positions. And we're going to be talking about a couple of people today and we're going to try to put ourselves in and apply what they learned to our own lives. Now, having said all that, um, I'd like to take a closer look at our gospel reading this morning. Read from the book of, of John. Um, but, uh, and again, see how we can apply what Jesus teaches and what Jesus does to our own lives, our walk with Jesus. Now, we're going to focus on the encounter Jesus shared with his disciples there on the beach. But before we get to verse, I mean, sort of chapter 21, I want to show you the end of John chapter 20, which makes chapter 21 even more significant. So I'm looking, look at, at the end of John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. It says, The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. So John is saying, uh, you know, he did so many things we can't even record them all. But then he says this in 31. These are written so that you may continue, look at that, continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. Period. Now, if I were Leonard Bernstein, who wrote West Side Story, or if I'm John Williams, who wrote the soundtrack to um, Star Wars, Jared, shout out to Star Wars, he wrote the soundtrack to Harry Potter. If I'm one of those uh, composers, right now, the music's going to start crescendoing at the end here, right? This is the life of John, and the credits are going to start to roll. But they don't, and it's not the end. John keeps going. This looks like the final word. But it's so in musical terms, um, I'm a musician, so in, you play symphonies, you know, symphony. there's a, sometimes a coda at the end of a movement of a symphony. And a coda means we've got some things that we need to explain and we need to merit out a little bit more. And so John chapter 21 kind of acts like a coda. It's not something that's just tacked on just to make the Bible a little bit thicker. It's settling some ideas and, some, and settling some unsolved um, ideas that, that are going on in, in the book of John earlier on. 
So there's a reason and a purpose for it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be there um, in the first place. So Jesus makes another surprised, unannounced appearance. And like I said, we should really be asking ourselves um, why this chapter is here for us. Well, I can sum up John chapter 21 in pretty much one word. And that word is Peter. Peter's got some unresolved things going on here. Peter is a dominant role in the Gospels. I think we can all understand that without really even being able to put our finger on a couple of verses that say that. Peter is a dominant role in the Gospels. But he's noticeably absent in the resurrection narratives. We see him going to the tomb on Easter morning. He, he's running with John. John beat him to the tomb. Remember how John said that? He beat him to the tomb. Peter's old and slow and you know he's big. But that, after that, he's just kind of there parenthetically with some of the other followers and some of the other disciples. So before we get into that, the, the last time that we see Peter prominently mentioned here is when he's standing by a fire with a couple of teenagers denying that he ever knew Jesus. Denying that he ever knew Jesus. We can't leave it there. We've got to move on a little bit. And I want to talk about that word deny real quick because I want, again, we've got to apply these ideas to our lives. We've got to put ourselves into these narratives. We can't read these things out of the gospel and say, that was somebody else at a different time somewhere else. We've got to look at them and say, wow, that sounds a lot like me a lot of the times. And maybe I can learn about how these get, things get resolved and how things move forward. So to talk about that word deny real quick, I want to make it personal and up close. Mark 14, 30. This is where Jesus is telling Peter that he's going to deny him. Jesus said to Peter, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. That word deny there means, listen to this, to forget oneself. To lose sight of oneself or lose sight of one's interests. That word deny there has more to do with you, has more to do with us than it has to do with whatever it is that we're denying, that it has to do with denying Jesus. To forget oneself, to lose sight of oneself or lose sight of one's interests. Peter did all of those things, standing there by that fire that night, a couple of teenage girls accusing him of knowing Jesus, and he denied the whole thing. So now I want to look at this encounter with Jesus on the beach. And I want to see what we can learn about, again, about ourselves during this historical account that actually happened. We're going to look at it from three different aspects, three different ways that, uh, that Jesus breaks into our lives. The first thing he did for those disciples is that he redirects them. He redirected where they were going. Look at John 21. We read this a moment ago, but I want to use a different version. I want to highlight a couple of different words here. So chapter 21, verses 1 and 2, it says, Later... Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. This is right after, right, we ended John in chapter 20. Set it down, boom, close the book. Wait, later, Jesus appeared again to the disciples by the Sea of Galilee. And this is how it went down. Verse 2, several of the disciples were there. Simon Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, Nathaniel from Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples. Okay, Give you a peek behind the curtain of how my mind works. Can't stay there too long because I get really confused. And you have no idea what's going on here. But when I read the Bible, I read things like this. Different things come to my mind. Look at how it says here. Simon Peter, we get him literally middle named here. We get Thomas's nickname. We get a shout out to Nathaniel's hometown. Get a shout out to Zebedee, James and John. Get a shout out to their heritage. And then we get these two other guys. Right? How would you like to be these two other guys? It reminds me of this old theme song, and just give me one minute here, bear with me. 
while we listen to uh, this, I'm going to make a point here at the end that you're going to, I'm going to surprise you at the end. So cute. There we go. All right. <laughs> I'll, I'll vamp a little bit longer here. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Talk amongst yourselves for just a minute. Ah, there it is. Just sit right back and you'll hear a tale, a tale of a fateful trip. You're singing along, you're dating yourself. From this tropic port aboard this tiny ship. Yes, black and the white. The mate was a mighty yeah. sailing man. The skipper brave and sure. Five passengers set sail that day for a three-hour tour. A three-hour tour. Started getting rough, the tiny ship was tossed. If not for the courage of the fearless crew, the middle would be lost. The middle would be lost. The ship's aground on the shore of this uncharted desert isle with Gilligan, the skipper, too. The millionaire and his wife. Now, oh, this part is what it gets me. And the rest. What part do you play on Gilligan's Island? Oh, I'm, I'm one of the rest, right? And by the way, Holly, this, uh, the Gilligan's Island theme works for Amazing Grace. You can sing, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a ranch like me. Like Robinson Crusoe. Oh, wait, that's a different part. Try it when you get home this afternoon. You know, and I look at moments like this, not the Gilligan's Island thing. That's just to break the ice a little bit. I look at moments like this and I think, is there any doubt that the Bible was written by humans for humans? I mean, if we were really worried about accountability, we would name these other guys too. We middle name Peter, we nickname Thomas, we give the hometown shout out. We would name who those other two disciples were and say a little bit about them like this. This is really, um, just shows us again, Bible written for humans, right? So this is the real stuff. So, okay, verse 3, Peter says, I'm going fishing. That's what Peter did before he encountered Jesus, before his life with Jesus, before Jesus. And the others say, we're going to go too. And see, it happens, and it says it went down like this. Um, They were all together with Jesus for years, right? Three years, some odd, whatever it is. For a while, they were with Jesus, right? And they watched him. They did those things with him. They saw him appear, um, you know, do all these miracles. But then, you know, the plot got changed on them right in front of their eyes. Jesus hung on that cross and he died right in front of some of their eyes. And then he was resurrected. Wow. And then he appeared to them. And they were, again, 100% convinced. Before the crucifixion, they were 100% convinced that he was the Messiah. During the crucifixion, they said, I guess we made a mistake because dude is dead right there. And the Messiah is not going to die. But then he's resurrected again. Now they're back in saying, okay, well, we're back in again. Obviously, he's the Messiah. But then there was a lag time here where Jesus didn't appear to them. And Peter got impatient. And Peter said, I guess that's it. I mean, he didn't sign off anything. He didn't say goodbye. But, you know, he never did the first time either. So I guess we're on our own. Let's go fishing. Let's go back to what we know. Let's go back to what we're doing. Peter, in a word, got misdirected. He was lost. He had lost himself. He lost sight of his interests, his goals. And worse yet, he was dragging some of these other people down with him. Some of them aren't named, but he's dragging these other people down with him. But then God shows up on the beach. In the translation we read a second ago, doesn't quite do it justice. Jesus veiled himself. It wasn't like they couldn't get a good look at this guy behind a boat or behind a tree or something. Jesus was right there, but he wasn't allowing himself to be seen. Not allowing himself to be recognized. And then he says some crazy words to them. Verse 5, he says, you don't have any fish, do you? 
They answered, no, no, we don't. And Jesus redirects them, right? The way he words this, there's no way around. It's not like, hey, did you have any fish? It's like, I know you don't have any fish. Admit you don't have any fish. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we don't have any fish. And actually, he calls them children at the beginning, which gives him authority. He's obviously some kind of teacher, some kind of rabbi, some kind of authority figure. Otherwise, he wouldn't be calling us children like this. And then he says this in verse 6, says some crazy stuff, redirecting them. Throw out your net on the right-hand side of the boat. And you'll get some. You'll get some. That had to sound ridiculous. Right? We've talked about this before. Throw your net over the other side. Come on out here, buddy. I'll throw you over the other side. Right? Peter must have said something like, hey, you two other guys, throw a net over the other side. But, okay, I don't know if they're driven by spite or whatever, but here they are. For whatever reason, they do it. They throw it over the side, and that net is so full that they can't drag it to shore. Right? They can't pull it in. The boat starts listing over there, and they, they think they're going to sink. All at once... The disciples are redirected. All at once, they're back on track with Jesus. They realize it. John verbalizes it. He says, yeah, that's Jesus standing on the shore there. Peter says he's stripped for work. That's an interesting word in the New Testament, by the way. We'll get back to that again some other time. He puts his cloak on so he can look respectable, and he jumps in the water. Now, how many people get dressed and then jump in the water? Don't you usually take stuff off and then jump in the water? But Peter... It's Jesus, I'm going to be back there. So he leaves, he swims back to shore, he starts swimming back to shore, leaving Thomas, James, John, Nathaniel, and the rest. Yes, right. So now when they're on their way to shore, you know, and I don't know if you can outswim a boat, but here's Peter swimming over there with a cloak on, right? And there's the other guys in the boat going, hey, dude, you just want to ride with us real quick here? But Peter is determined to work. Peter's determined to do this on his own, Right? So they reach Jesus, and now he's not only redirected them, but now he's going to recharge them. So Peter starts swimming 100 yards out, right? He starts swimming in there, and they get to the shore, and everybody knows it's Jesus. Jesus knows they know it's Jesus, and they know that Jesus knows that they know that it's, it's, here he is. And they got, he's got breakfast here waiting for them. He's got loaves and fishes, right? I've heard that a couple of times before, right? Where'd he get the fish? I don't know. He's Jesus, right? But then, I don't know why, also why, no, I'm going to tell you in a second. He says to Peter, um, go get some of those fish you caught. And so Peter doesn't say, hey, you two other guys. Peter goes down and he grabs that net and he drags that net up onto the shore. Right? And they counted, by the way, 153, I don't have the verse on there, but he counted 153 fish, big ones it says. Anybody into numerology here? Significance and numbers in the Bible? Do you know what this 153 signifies? What the significance of it is? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> John just bragging about it. I think, you know, maybe the significance is that there's that many fish and the net didn't tear. At least nothing we found yet. And trust me, a lot of people have looked very deeply into that. A lot of hours of work have gone into that. No symbolism that we know about. But here's the thing. I want you to notice the contrast here. The contrast in this, in chapter 1, John chapter 21, I'm sorry, John chapter 21, the contrast uh, between what Peter feels he needs to do to prove himself to Jesus. The things Peter feels he has to do to prove himself to Jesus. And how many times are we in that boat too? How many times have we literally fallen away from him and said, you know what, i got to work my way back to him? He doesn't ride in the boat with everybody else. He gets in the water and he swims 100 yards. That's crazy. I'd never swim 100 yards unless I was trying to save my life. Right? 100 yards he swims. And then Jesus says, go get some of those fish. He goes down. He hauls that net. He says, Jesus, look it. 
I am swimming. I am hauling. I know that whole deny thing happened earlier, but you know, let's just forget about that because I'm really in here now. I'm really involved. I'm really on it. Ten minutes ago, or maybe 12 hours ago, he said, forget the whole thing. We're going to go fishing. We've got to get back to what we know how to do because I guess this is the end. He got misdirected. He got misguided. Started forgetting his goals. Jesus redirects them, and now he's going to recharge them, right? Even though uh, Peter is still working on this. But the thing that Peter missed, the contrast here, Peter's working for it, but Jesus already has it prepared. Jesus already has it ready. All you've got to do is come and partake. He's inviting you to recharge. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to go through it. Jesus says it's right for you to revive, to refresh all these things that he's offering them. But for Peter, and for many people today, that relationship with God is about working, is about proving yourself that you're worthy, about being the best. Peter said, he looked Jesus in the face back there in Mark, and he said, um, he said I, even if all these other losers here deny you, I will not deny you. And Jesus was like, yeah, you know, Here's the thing. But now, Peter's saying, I'm swimming for you. I'm hauling for you. I'm doing whatever you want, whatever I need to prove. Jesus doesn't even need those fish. He's already prepared a table for Peter. So at this point, Peter and a lot of people right now might be getting half the gospel message. This wasn't the first time, by the way, that Jesus said, cast your nets on the other side. When he was calling Peter, when he was calling the the disciples, the children, they were out there fishing, and he said, throw your net over on the other side. And Peter recognized immediately what must be happening here. And his answer, his response to Jesus was these words. He said, depart from me, Lord. He said, I am a sinful man. But seeing the miraculous power of Jesus this time, after he knows everything that's going on, he, he runs to it. He's drawn to it. But he still thinks he has to earn it. He still thinks he's got to make up for what he's done in the past. And Jesus is like, just come and refresh. Come and revive. Come and restore. Peter, like I said, and many others think that, that our performance is the basis of being accepted by Christ. We think that our performance is what Jesus bases his acceptance on, and it's not. His acceptance is based on him, not on us. The gospel says Jesus has given you his acceptance as a gift. So Jesus gives this invitation. Come to breakfast. Come and eat. Come and refresh yourself. Come revive yourself. So Jesus has redirected them back to him. He's recharged them. And now Jesus works on restoring them. It gets pretty crazy in here. The language and the words, the vocabulary that gets used here. And we can apply these words and this concept to us, to our lives. Because Peter literally has a come to Jesus meeting here. Literally has a come to Jesus meeting here with who he is and how he falls short and how we fall short because of who we are. John chapter 21, verse 15. This is the conversation. After breakfast, Jesus says to Simon Peter, He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Feed my lambs, Jesus says. 
After breakfast, after Jesus refreshed them, recharged them, he says, all right, let's get down to restoring you now. Jesus says, Simon, son of God, do you love me more than these? Peter says, yes, I love you. The Greek language has um, at least six common words for the word love. The English language doesn't. We say we love pizza, we love our moms, we love our wives, we love our dogs. Not in that order. The dogs would come sooner. Jesus says, do you love me? This is the Greek word you've probably heard of before called agape. This means unconditional love. Do you love me, Jesus asks Peter. Agape me. Unconditionally, no matter what happens... Do you love me more than these? And there's an argument about that, so let's stay away from that for a second. But do you love me? Do you agape me? Peter is still feeling the sting from that denial not too long ago. And Jesus knows all about it. Remember when he was walking by and Jesus looked him straight in the face? And Peter's like, oh, talk about getting caught in the act. Peter's still stinging from it. So he knows he can't look at Jesus and answer him straight in the face, yes, like that. He says, yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know, I love you, but Peter uses a different word for love. He uses the word phileo, which means friendship, brotherly love. That's where we get the word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, because it's from the Greek word phileo. Jesus says, you agape me. Peter says, I phileo you. I love you to the best of my ability. I love you to what extent I can. I've already proven that I'm going to fall short, and I probably will again, but I'm in it as much as I possibly can be. Then Jesus comes out at him again. In verse 16, second verse, same as the first, Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said. You know I love you. Same thing. Jesus says, Peter, do you agape me? Unconditionally, no matter what, Do you love me? Peter says, I phileo love as best I can. The limits that I have, the limitations that I have. Peter's answering with all honesty here. I love you as much as I'm able to. And then Jesus says, that's enough. That's all I'm looking for. I'm not looking for you to be perfect. I just want you to give me that perfect effort. Right? Verse 17, the first half of it says, A third time, Jesus asked Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Jesus changes the narrative here. Because he knows we all fall short. He knows we can't live up to that. So he changes the word here. Jesus says, do you flail me? Do you love me to the best of your ability? Do you love me with who you are and what you have? And Peter is crushed by it. I don't know if it's by relief or by the realization that Jesus understands who we are and the limitations that we have. We think it's our effort. Jesus says, it's not your effort, and I'm going to show you how, and I'm going to show you why. So he's not doing this to belittle Peter. He's doing this to to meet him at where he is. To meet you. To meet us where we are. 
The second half of verse 17 says, Peter was hurt, he was grieved, he was distressed, he was crushed. That Jesus asked the question the third time, and how he asked that question the third time. Peter could could put the word obviously in front of this sentence. He said, obviously, Lord, you know everything. And so you know that I love you to the best of my ability, to the reaches that I can reach. Jesus brought it down to Peter's level and he brings it down to our level and he meets us there with it. He's not saying swim to shore. He's not saying haul this, do that, do that. No, he's saying, why don't you come and take to the table that I've prepared for you? Why don't you accept what's already done for you and understand that it's not you, it's me that does it. Jesus says, I, do you phileo me? Peter is humble. He finally gets it. It's not about us, it's about Jesus. The Bible says that the word of God is alive and active. It's an important thing for us to remember, that it's alive and active. It's not something that's limited to being written for somebody else at some other time in some other place. No, it's written for you. And it's written for you to hear words like this today to make a difference in us tomorrow. The gospel is alive and active. I showed you how chapter 20 could be the end of John, the book of John. But it really can't be the end of John because we had some unfinished business with Peter. So the book of John can't end with chapter 20 because Peter gets restored in chapter 21. We had some unfinished business to do. So just like the gospel isn't finished until Peter is restored, I'm going to tell you this, and there's no challenge, I'm just stating the facts. The gospel can't end until the resurrection of Christ has been applied to you has been applied to your life until we can look Jesus in the face and say, it's all about you and it's none about me. You picking up what I'm putting down? Okay, let's stand, please.